My name's Matt Nicoletti. Joining me today, we have Andy Bernal on the show. A lot of accolades to his name. First ever Australian to play in um, Spain. First ever Australian to play in England and Spain. First ever Australian to captain an English side, which was Reading. Former right-hand man of David Beckham in Madrid. Uh, sports agent himself and Canberra's very own Andy Bernal. Andy, thank you for joining me today, despite some uh, technical issues. Yeah, well, I think we've uh, I think we've beaten them now. So, um, look, it's a pleasure to to be on your show and um, talk about my career uh, and you know, football in general, where we're going uh, in the world and, and from Canberra and Australia. But um, you know, it, it's uh, it's a great opportunity uh, to discuss with you yeah, the project that I'm on now, the the book, the book launch, and. Uh, you know, things that I want to do with it. You know, I want to translate it into Spanish. I want to uh, turn it into a movie or a Netflix series um, because really it, it's a wonderful journey. Um, it's good, bad, ugly. Um, but if you're going to leave a legacy after football, um, it's one that, that touches upon mental health also. And, and I think, uh, you know, it's quite educational in many ways. It transcends just football. and It's something I'm very proud of. Yeah, and uh, the book is Riding Shotgun. Very good book. I suggest you pick it up. Not just saying that, it is a terrific read. Even for people who uh, don't even watch uh, football, they'll um, they'll enjoy the story. Now, let's start off with, did you have a moment um, where you thought uh, during your playing career, after your playing career, where you thought, oh, like I want to write a book or did you write, just write something down? Was there a moment or did it just sort of happen? I was um, look. My football career was was uh, I wasn't the greatest soccerer, but I wasn't the worst soccerer. So, in itself, it was a, a pioneering story, a, a journey, a trailblazing journey, and you know we kind of led the way for, for the Vadukas, the Kills, the Cahills, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so that in itself was a good story. But you kind of need, I think, a little bit more for for a book. And, and the fact that I ended up, you know. Managing David Beckham, Tim Cahill, Tom Rogic, Carl Valeri from Canberra, um, kind of adds a lot of, of, of um, you know content spice uh, at times, and uh, certainly you know after my time with David in Spain, you know I knew that that I had lived a movie, you know I had lived an incredible ride, uh, you know that that you could only described as a combination of, of the James Bond movie, The Wolf of Wall Street, Jerry Maguire, you know, I'm hanging out with the Galacticos at Real Madrid, the team of last century. Uh, just uh, at times so, so magnificent, but so unbelievable that, you know, it's it, words at times, do not do it, you know, cannot do it justice. And look, I've tried my best. The story kind of writes itself. You know, it's what I lived uh, from from the early days in Australia to, you know, to, you know the showbiz of, of Real Madrid, uh, to scouting in South America for the Socceroos. Uh, it's, it's just, it, it was a journey that needed to be told um, on many levels. Uh, but certainly uh, if it's going to leave anything when I pass uh, some kind of a legacy in terms of, um, you know, giving the younger generations uh, hope, uh, resilience, 
you know, and, and determination and, and empowering them to go and chase their dreams. Uh, so let's start from the beginning. Your parents uh, immigrated from Spain, as did a lot of Europeans uh, during that time, during the 60s. Uh, how influent, influential were your parents on your on your life? Major, majorly uh, influential. You know, they uh, they brought to Australia what a lot of immigrants, well, you know, the, the hard work ethic. You know, times weren't great in Europe, and um, they came to what was supposed to be a promised land, and uh, but they were prepared to work harder. And like you know, every immigrant has a story they all have stories and we all have stories and I wrote this a little bit you know with every immigrant you know on my back on my shoulder you know because it, it was for them as well and the things I went through many many out there can relate and uh, you know maybe I don't know why but my career you know, allowed me to, to play in, in magnificent stadiums throughout the world to meet magnificent you know, famous people, uh, iconic people. It just happened, you know. And uh, you know, one percent away, you know, from from you know, many people that, that football would allow would not you know, without football that I would never have met. Um, but for some reason, it kept happening in my life. It kept happening in my life. Um, whether I played against people, whether I then became, you know, Beckham's manager in Madrid, you know whether my first football client as an agent, you know, was Tim Cahill. What are the chances that the first one you signed is Tim Cahill? Uh, and he goes on to have such a successful career. So, you know, it, it's, I don't know whether destiny was written above, um, but certainly um, my story is just another immigrant story. Um, <laughs> well, not just, it, it, it's a pretty special one. Uh, so, you know, uh, it, it, what I've written, I hope people can relate to and I hope it brings them, whether it's tears, joy, whatever, you know, they come for the ride with. And uh, mention your, your parents there. Uh, your dad has some very interesting stories. Uh, you mentioned in the book, how he came here, crocodile hunting, um, sh uh, sugar, uh, sugar canes. A lot of the Europeans came here, did yeah. uh, worked in the sugar cane fields or the snowy mountains or stuff like that. Um, one of the, Interesting, interesting stories I loved was him uh, uh, randomly meeting uh, Leonardo DiCaprio in Battery Park in New York. Can you just explain that story quickly for the, the yeah, viewers? Um, he'd quickly gone down for a, uh, a cigarette. And at the time, I think we're talking about 10, 12 years ago, something like that, he um, he saw a bloke smoking an e-cigarette and uh, it was DiCaprio. Um, he had no idea. Um, shout out to the bloke and... And I think an hour later, then they're sharing coffees and stories. And, um, and DiCaprio told him to go somewhere and, and talk to somebody and the tobacconist, and he'd look after you. Tell Leo, tell him Leo sent you. And then dad came back to my sister's in, in e cigarette heaven, mate. And um, she said, Dad, Dad, do you, do you know who you were talking to downstairs? Goes, well, I don't have a clue. And um, she's Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio. And uh, he said, who the F is Leonardo DiCaprio? And, uh, and, and that was my dad. He, he wasn't your average cat. Uh, Leonardo would have uh, picked up on that immediately. That's what top actors do. They, they look for characters. They look for, for people who have stories that, 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 you know, go deep into souls. And um, dad was like that. You know, and he, he would have wooed 
DiCaprio not even knowing that it was DiCaprio. And, and there you go. You know, that was just uh, one story of my dad's fascinating life. And, and you know, he and he and mum brought brought fantastic uh, DNA to, to the table and, and, you know, stuff on a mind level and physiological level that, that allowed me to, to go and, and, you know, play on big stages and, and be around and represent, you know, some of the world's you know, best sportsmen. And growing up in Canberra back in, uh, back in that time, 60s, 70s, there's a lot of Euro, uh, Europeans here, but that uh, didn't come without um, the uh, racial abuse, which you mentioned quite a bit in the book. And you mentioned it later on where you, um, later on in the book, uh, when, especially when you returned to Australia. What uh, did that sort of, you know, shape you from your experiences? Did it sort of harden your character? What, 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 what did those sort of, you know, moments um sort of have an impact oh, on you it, it um as, as a kid you um you know you're born in australia you, you want to be an aussie um but every day you're not an aussie you know and i don't know if it was us you know that we wouldn't take crap we, we fought back um uh, you know if you called us wogs if you brought heat to our home it came, it went back, you know, it came back to you and, and it would come back with interest. Dad was like that. And, and I certainly was as well. Uh, and maybe that's why I, I kind of was around racism more because we, we found, it seemed to find us because we wouldn't just bow down to it. So we would fight back. And, you know, what? we ended up becoming, you know, the fabric of, part of the fabric of society. Uh, uh, we, we would go and watch, you know, all the sports, you know, um, from from motorsports, uh, a trolley speedway to the wrestling, to rugby league, to rugby union, to cricket. Um, you know, we were involved with everything. We just wanted to be part of, of, of being Australian. So, you know, but, you know, the, the kind of the pathway was a little bit set for me in terms of my, my uncle Luis played football here for the Spanish club and, you uh, and most of the the immigrants and immigrants' kids, you know, were tied to to their clubs, you know, of, of whatever country they, they had come of, of origin, uh, the Italians, the Croatians, the Greeks, the Serbians, whatever, yes. And uh, so that was the escape on the weekend for people that couldn't really speak a lot of English and, and they would hang out at their local club after the, the weekend's football and speak in their, their language and, and, and have fun and drink, get pissed and, and whatever. Um, and they were good times. And um, it, it was part of all that growing up and, uh, you know, that environment that, that you know, uh, educates you, I think maybe in the right way to, to go on and, and, and become a winner in life. You know, the, you know, whether it was, you know, things that you, you listened to or that you heard or, or examples of, of, of People becoming fantastic, you know, great builders, you know, great footballers, great this, great that. That then you ingest and you, you put into your mind and you process and you think, you know, um, well, this is what I want to do now. Um, you know, I wanted to be a rugby league star for Australia. You know, I wanted to play rugby league and I was better at rugby league than, than football. But, um, you know, it kind of went towards the football way because of my uncle and, um, you know, I, I achieved, you know, pretty decent things as well in, in football, but it was, um, yeah, I had no doubt, you know, I had no doubt at, um, let's say 15, 16, I, I would read the newspaper at the Spanish club 
and uh, people would walk past and, you know, what's he doing? And, you know, I'd be looking at the, the Spanish Liga 1 and 2, all the, the results, the tables, and, um, you know, I knew I would play there. People would say, what are you doing? I was looking at the tables and the Bernabeu Stadium and I'm going to play there one day. And they were like, you know, um, you know how many players there are in Spain. You know how many players there are in Spain. You know, it, impossible. Impossible. What's he even thinking about? Um, but um, I knew I would sit at Belconnen High School and look out the window and oh, I could almost smell the turf at Wembley at Leeds United, at Manchester United, playing Manchester United, playing Arsenal. Uh, it was kind of like it was in my head and these pictures would go around in my head and I just knew I'd do it. You know, and, and now when I when I manage kids and I train kids, and I suppose as I get older, the the enormity of, of, of some of the games and places that I've played at kind of hits me home a little bit now. It hits harder with me because it, it's I just did it, and people kind of ask the formula. The I just did it. There was no academies. I was it was my own academy. Find a wall, you know. Uh, just played every sport, athletics, cricket, you name it. Um, rugby league, AFL, rugby union, fighting in the streets, whatever, hunting. We used to go hunting a lot and just loved it. Just loved everything. And, and I really believe the more sports uh, young kids play, now they're locked into a particular kind of uh, sport and particular kind of technical kind of um, processes and, and plans and uh, you know by playing every sport you start understanding angles and and, and, and spatial spatial awareness changes and the angles of it you know you need to ingest more knowledge and you start understanding that you know playing halfback or five eighths like Thurston is almost similar to Beckham. You know, he gets the ball and he pings it wide and he's looking for wingers and uh, you're looking for space in behind. You know, Billy Slater, it's like a sweeper. As the tackle that I made on Van Egmond that kind of led to a goal in the 91 grand final where Sydney Olympic we became Australian champions. It's really a, a cover tackle. Billy Slater, like, bang, get it, and you run out. And, and uh, you know, no one had to, to tell me open out, do this, do that. The brain just, we don't, that's the problem now. There's no imagination. There's, you know, I was down at um, the OS watching the under 20 Socceroos warm up a couple of years ago and I was confused. You know, there's this football pitch and there was flags on it everywhere, like 100 flags, 100 cones, 100 beacons, bibs, 50 new balls, 30 Socceroos, you know, 30 young Socceroos, all dressed immaculately, all wearing, you know, $400 boots. And um, they were performing this warm-up drill like the seals and, and uh, you know, the dolphins at SeaWorld. But it was amazing. It was amazing to watch. It was like a military parade. And then the next day they play game, they don't know what to do. You know, you just, just really like, what do you do when you run into an elbow? They don't know what to do. What do you do when Sergio Ramos is up your ass? They don't know. Well, uh, we, well I was, I'll, I'll, we'll mention that uh, soon because i got a few questions about the AS actually. But before we get there, in your in your journey, you played your juniors mostly at Bell South and then you 
um, cracked into the Narrabunda senior team when you were about 14 or 15, I believe. People still, because uh, you mentioned on the previous recording, but my dad also played in that team. And you uh, and I, people still go up to him and say, oh, I saw that, that picture that um, Andy put up. That was, people still say it's one of the best teams Narrabunda had. So can you talk a little bit about that, considering this is a Canberra-based show? It's, it's one of the greatest teams this nation has had. Don't worry about Canberra. Uh, in terms of an under-20 side at the time, you know, we were ACT champions and um, we would have competed against any side in the country at the time, whether it was a South Melbourne, a, Marconi, a Sydney team, a Marconi, Sydney Olympic, whoever. And this was a team of kids made up of immigrants, kids and some Italian like your father. Um, most of us were Spanish and... You know, just uh, my uncle was coach. He also played. I was the youngest. I was about 14, 15, and the rest of the boys were 18, 19. And, you know, I was there by default, actually. I wanted to play for Belcon in under-20s, and I went to the trials, and I was only 14, 15 at Belcon at the time. And the coach said, no, you're not ready. Uh, he said that after I kicked ass all day. And, and I just thought, no, he, he's got his own team. He's got his own plan. So, you know what, but I, I wasn't going to leave his decision just like that, you know, he he said, you're not ready for us in front of, you know, a whole squad. So in front of the whole squad, I said, um, I said, listen, um, you know where to go. And my dad's in the car park and he's going to tell you where to go. And um, you're going to watch me play on TV one day. And I'm going to make you look like a fool. And in the meantime, I'm going to go to Narrabunda and play where my uncle is and we're going to come back and I'm going to kick your ass this on this season and we're going to do it once twice and then in finals um, you know remember me for life and um, that's what we did and that was a, an amazing time uh, an amazing team you know surrounded by uh, again uh, an environment and messages that, that were just from an older generation from Spain that had seen Spanish football firsthand, that some had, had, you know, touched on playing there a little bit. And the messages were, were messages that of, that I would later, um, you know, hear when I went to Spain, the messages that I would hear at home, you know, messages that first and foremost, you, you needed to be a warrior. You know, you needed to, uh, like immigrants that came over, these were hard, steely people, you know, resilient people that, you know, worked hard. We work hard. You know, we, if we have to kick people, we kick people. If we have to play, we play. You know, we play with no fear. Um, and it was a fantastic team. It was a fantastic set of kids. So it was not only one of the best under-20 teams Canberra has ever seen, probably the best under 20 team Canberra's ever seen at club level, we would have been in the top three easy in Australia. Uh, again, I, I wasn't a starting 11 player. I was, you know, 14, 15, you know, under 20s, 19, 20 year old kid guys. Um, but for me, it was a, an education. Uh, um, I played a lot of minutes too. Um, because, you know, for me at 14, 15, 16, uh, the first thing you got when Andy played in your side was, you know, a warrior you know, of, of, of that ilk, you know, you know, the Puyols, the Ramoses, the, you know, 
that was Andy, you know, 20 years before. And um, so, yeah, there you go. So we, um, and, 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 and that ran through throughout the whole side, you know, it was, um, you know, the messages from the coaching staff, the, you know, everybody, um, you know, the first thing is, you know, you need a pair of big balls to go out there and, uh, you know, that was it, you know. I mean, your dad played in that side um, and he'll tell you, you know, it, it was, um, you know, but there weren't too many limitations on anything. It was, you can go and play, go and play like Spain, be brave, you know, to the wingers, get past people, cross the ball. It's, football is pretty simple, complicated by people now in positions that um, need to make it complicated. So they can justify themselves an existence and a living and an income, but it's the most basic game on the planet. Well, that's actually a good transition to what I was going to ask next. You end up at the AIS with um, the likes of Ron Smith coaching you. You mentioned how important that was for you and you're not the only one. There's so many players, so many of the great soccerers that went through there five or 10 or 15 years later, talked about how great that environment was for them at the AIS between uh, Viduca, Bresciano, I think Aloisi was there as well. There's so many that went through there and they all talked about how important the AIS was for them. How important was it for you? And then if you can touch upon um, your opinions on them getting rid of the AIS, I think it was like three, four years ago now, and where the Australian youth are left because of it. Well, it was... Um... It was very important because um, I, I'd gone from Narrabunda to Canberra City, Canberra Arrows, I think at the time, and I played in their youth team in the National Soccer League. And, you know, it was kind of where the best under-18s in the country went. And, and uh, it was in Canberra and kind of I didn't really have to make a big move as such. But people like Frank Farina and stuff like that were there. So Tony Franken, uh, it was somewhere where you aimed as a young man. And it was somewhere that, you know, they went to nationals and they picked the three, four best players, you know, to come into the program. And uh, he all got selected and Jimmy Shoulder was the head coach. And he had been an ex-pro for Sunderland and, and played cricket for Darlington and ex-soccer coach. So he was the head coach. Ron was assistant. Ron Smith was his assistant. You know, but um, again, we got information and we got educated by people that had been there, done that, um, that really understood uh, and simplified the messages to us. And, you know, if you're told a certain thing one, two, three times, if you have to be told more than three times to do something, the game is not for you. If I tell you to mark someone this way and after three times you, you, you don't register that, it's not for you. Join the public service, do something else. Um, it's it really ain't for you. And, and we, you know, they were... They were pretty strong messages. Um, we got great information, body positioning, everything from everything. But we, um, you know, and we were, we were told home truths about football. If you do this, this and that, you have a chance. If your 20-metre sprint test is this, you'll never play top level. If it's this, you have a chance. If your VO2 max is this, you'll play that level max. If your VO2 max is that, you could go all the way. If it's this, for example, a very low score, you know what? You just got no chance. So we were given, you know, given the truth. You know, it's not given that much these days, but it's certainly, for me, the AIS was, was a platform, a, a stepping stone. And, and what it did allow me 
was the opportunity to travel overseas uh, for the first time ever and play with the AIS in, in, in tournaments in in Germany and Holland where you know, we would come up against Manchester United's, Liverpool's. You know, we, we ended up in a final uh, against Real Madrid at Borussia Dortmund Stadium. And, uh, you know, their coach at the time was Vicente Del Bosque, you know, one of the greatest ever. And uh, as Ron Smith would say, I was I'm the first Australian to ever be identified by Real Madrid. And, um, he liked what he saw, but I, at that age, my knee was still okay. Uh, it, was, it was heading for, for not the greatest, you know, next decade, but my knee was good at that time. And, you know, that's a pretty big accolade and pretty big honour. But I was of that ilk. I was of that standard. Uh, a lot of the years I've, I've shied away from saying that, but if a gentleman like him identifies you, then there's something about you. Before we move on, what the uh, the AS obviously closed down three, four years ago, and a lot of the former soccerers that have been there have talked about how they despise that decision from the FFA or now the FA. How important was that to players and what are players missing now from not having that platform? Just that professional platform is what they all said. They said it well, made them professionals. Well, I think... Uh, I think the age changed as well. Um, so we were 17, 18. Uh, over the last few years at the AIS, they were like 15, 16. So some of them went from the AIS towards the end, the, the final years now, uh, you know, they would graduate out of the AIS and they'd have to go to A-League clubs, for example, and go back into kind of youth teams. And, and it all became a little bit kind of dysfunctional there. Whereas we, um, we were 18, we would graduate from the AOS and we would either be picked up by European clubs or almost like a draft, almost like an Aussie draft, uh, you know, all the NSL teams would come in and say, I'll have Frank Farina, I'll have Andy Bunnell, I'll have so-and-so. And, and that's how it worked. We were kind of going into a first-team environment uh, everywhere, you know, at 16, you know, the last few years at the AOS just kind of, that was wrong the age, but also, uh, you know, the last three, four years at the AS, they were playing against local MPL teams here. Uh, when I was at the AS, we played against Sydney Olympics, South Melbourne, all the top NSL clubs, which was the premier competition at the time, so equivalent to A-League now. Um, and they would, when we played against them, they would bring down five or six of their first teamers to play. Uh, so, you know, you get better as a footballer uh, by playing against quality opposition. So, you know, you could have the AIS down here, the best facilities ever, uh, the best coaches, the best 18 kids in the country. How are you going to test yourself? It's too easy. It's um, Swine Europe, you know, the breeding grounds, the environments are, um, you know, you play in a Spanish, you know, La Liga one or two team, and every weekend you're playing against. Say you're under 14s Madrid, you're playing Atletico, you're playing Barcelona, you're playing Sporting Gijón, you're playing Albacete, you're playing Bilbao, you're playing Espanyol, you're playing Sevilla, you're playing Betis. It's um, at under 14s level, and that's what drives you know the machine. You know, and you mentioned uh, Spain there. You did end up uh, moving to Spain, Sporting Gijón. You signed for. Uh, you mentioned. Uh, quite a bit in uh, your third chapter about this um, going there, not really um, 
sort of sort of finding out the uh, the hard way what uh, professional football was like back then when you were an international heading into a heading into a league that didn't have many foreign players. A lot of the leagues weren't allowed a lot of foreign players, which goes into your story later. Uh, can you just explain a little bit a bit about your time in Spain and uh, how hard it was? How hard you found it to assimilate um, before you proved yourself as a player? Well, you you know you go there, and, and I was captain of Australian under twenties at the time. You, know, you turn up, um, you know, Gijon had signed me, and uh, no respect, zero respect on a football level. Um, 30, 35, 40 years ago, being Australian, you know, they had, they had images of these kangaroos here everywhere. And and, and, yeah. and, and, and you know, we just played rugby league. So uh, there, there was no way an Aussie could play in Spain. You know, it's just, uh, and they still think that now. You know, they, there is no respect for, for Australian footballers now. You know, people like, for example, Kuehl, Cahill and Viduka that have made it to a certain extent in, in England and, and become world figures. Um, yeah, they're afforded the respect now, but only towards the end of their careers. Yeah. But for young young Australians now, nothing. It's it's hard to prove yourself. and You need to prove it in many ways. And um, for me, I was lucky, you know, my parents were, were Spanish, but uh, you, you still um, looked upon it as a foreigner. Um, uh, the rules were antiquated back then, so I, I, I had to be a foreigner because I'd already played for the Australian under-20s, which made it even more difficult. But yeah, the, the machine that is Spanish football, the machine that is Italian football, the machine that is English football, um, but in particular at the time, Spanish football, it, thri- it thrives on, on destroying weak, the weak minds. Um, they, they purposely do it, coaches, everybody. They just go out to destroy and eliminate footballers from a particular squad so that they know the one or two that are left over from the 20s that year that they haven't destroyed. They have the character, the fortitude, the mental kind of standing to be able to go and move into the first team and play in front of 100,000 people at the Bernabeu. That's how the machine works. And, and, you know, you quickly get used to it. You quickly understand that's how it works and and you become part of that and you you do your best to survive. Uh, Living... uh, you know, for me, you know, it was tough. You know, there was no messenger services, there was no social media, Instagram, Facebook, WhatsApp, mobile phones, nothing. So, you know, you put in a room, uh, you go training, you go back to that room, you rest, you training, go back to that room, watch some Spanish TV on a fuzzy television that they have for you. Uh, you know, if it's raining the next day, if it's how do you speak to people? How do you know if training's on or off? Yeah. You go, 10 kilometres. And then, you know, you sometimes you've got to walk to 10 kilometres because there's no bus that day up a mountain in Gijon. And, um, no, there's no training. You know, well, they might have told you there's training just to play around with your head. And so you go up there and no one's there. So it, it's um, it hardens the soul. But my childhood, you know, growing up in Canberra and the racism, the, the whole thing, you know, uh, my family's genetics, yeah, we, I adapted to it and, you know, I, I quickly understood. Uh, so this is the way of the world here. 
okay, I'll play that game. So um, and we all we all kind of endear ourselves to, to coaches, to football clubs in many ways. You know, we all can't be Messi, Maradona, Ronaldo uh, in terms of technical ability, skills, all that sort of stuff. You know, the, you know for me, it was, you know, like Ramos. I'm going to kick the shit out of you. I'm going to play. I can play. Um, and, you know, eventually I went out on loan. You know, it's hard. Gijon, I couldn't, you know, I was 18. and five Spanish internationals. Now I was never going to play that first 11 for a while. So they loaned you out. And um, my coach at, at Albacete was Pachin. And he played for Real Madrid, just two, three European championships. And then he played in the great side of, you know, with the Stefano, Puskas, Gento. And, um, you know, he said, son, Here's, here's some basic instructions that I'm going to give you. It's what I did. And uh, your job is to eliminate the number 10. I don't care how you do it. Uh, I don't want any excuses. You eliminate him, you kick the shit out of him, you win the ball, and you give it to players that are better footballers than you. And if you do that, you'll play for your national team and you play four or 500 games around the world pretty simple instructions you know there was um you know warm-ups were simple uh, you know. he would have looked i'm telling you, he played for real madrid you know 500 games and spain he would have looked at that warm-up that the young socceroos did at the end he was gone i'm confused too and so it's um different times you know but, but look it is what it is it was what it was the, the communication the social media the whole lot um i can look on it now and uh, and understand why things have happened in my life, how mentally you were impacted later on in life. At the time, you know, no social media was normal. That was normality. So we, you worked your way around it. Um, now, have you told a kid, you know, I'm going to send you to Spain and, and give me your phone and you're going to talk to mum and dad for six months. You may be a collect call through an operator. Um, Give me everything. Give me your laptop, your everything. You can't have anything. All you've got is a pen, a bit of paper, and a room and a bed. Try it's, that. It definitely um, was a different time back then. And interesting how you mentioned how, like, Australians sort of gained zero respect, especially in those sort of countries like Spain and Italy. I did remember reading Grell and Bresciano's stories, and they said it was the exact same thing, despite the fact they had uh, Italian ties like you with your Spanish ties. That didn't matter to them. They just had to sort of prove themselves and then they ended up having 10 plus year careers um, doing well for soccer and Italy as well. But it's never easy, especially, um, especially, you know, before the 2010s, yeah. 100%. And you ended up uh, fleeing Spain because um, they wouldn't let you play for the Spanish national team. You mentioned how antiquated the rules were and you ended up um, going to uh, England, England, because they wanted you to do military service, but they wouldn't let you play for the team. So, what sort of, uh, what was that sort of process uh, like for you? Uh, sort of leaving the country uh, as soon as you could to, you know, avoid. Um, well, it's uh, just a you know, want military service, really. It was just a principal situation. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, FIFA. You know, had, had these rules then, and only two foreigners were allowed. And I played for the Australian under twenties, and, and despite having a Spanish passport, I, I was ruled um, I would be a foreigner in Spanish football. Having a Spanish passport was incredible. So, um, you know, it, it meant that it would be very difficult 
you know, to, to as a defender to stay in Spain. Um, you know, they look for number nines and tens as their foreign players, you know, two per team. So really, the, the the two years that I played in Spain, I played as a foreigner and as a defender, which, you know, the, the, the facts of that are that, you know, that would put you in the top 40, 50, 60 players in the world to occupy a foreigner spot in in, in Spain. Um, but I was of that level at the time. And, but, you know, it is what it is. And I was not going uh, to go to war for a, prepared to go to war for a country that wouldn't allow me to play football as a Spaniard. Um, so Dad and I escaped. Well, I escaped. And we got to the airport and left and then... Um, See you later. The military police arrived weeks later at my grandmother's, and by then I was gone. And uh, look, years later, we we fixed everything up with the Spanish embassy here in Canberra. Um, but certainly, um, if I'd been caught on the way out, I would have been in a military prison for two years. But I wasn't, and I hit London and got in with a a, part, a visa that was supposed to be for part time work. Um, but they didn't really have any markings those days. I'd already studied it out. I worked that out about four or five years ago. I'd prepared for this day. And uh, so I could get a visa stamped in and then the FA would look at it. You know, the club would look at it and go, hey, working visa, bang. You know, it didn't say full part-time work or anything like that. And um, that's how I got into England. And, uh, you know, eventually it would be my downfall. Um, it's kind of weird because the Spanish passport that I acquired that you know, made me leave Spain, yeah. Was my re-entry many many years later um, when I signed for Reading. So it, um, you know, under a Euro passport. So there you go. And you went straight from Spain to uh, to Nottingham. You mentioned in your book how if someone like Pakin can um, can endorse me and Del Bosque can endorse me, then I'm not I'm not going to have any sort of you know fear in going up to the one and only Brian Clough and asking him for a trial. Uh, what was it like? being trained by arguably the greatest one of the greatest coaches ever in football oh just um very very blessed to have been around you know again like you said you know arguably the the greatest you know British football manager in history. You know, there's a few others around but but certainly he's up there and he would tell you himself he was the best uh, and first just a mad genius. You know, he taught me that managing football clubs has got nothing to do with football. He told me that on many occasions, son has nothing to do with football. And he's right. You know, anyone that thinks managing top football clubs is uh, about football, it's a mindset, the whole thing. It's, it's making men uh, want to go to war with you. Um, believing in, in what, what you know, what kind of plan and, 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 and a journey you have for them. And once you, you get people believing into that, you know, he took a, a team that was, um, I wouldn't say mediocre, but they were you know, a decent first division team. And they won two European championships. And he produced many, many wonderful internationals. And he, but he was different. You know, he just wanted to talk cricket with me. Yeah. You know, he, yeah. There you go, just cricket. He loved cricket. He, he'd asked me about West Indies and had I seen Desmond Haynes and Viv Richards and Gordon Greenwich and, 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 and I loved cricket. So, for, you know, from, from minute one, we were kind of like, he embraced me and um, 
you know, he he said, uh, he said, I had another Aussie here. Yeah, he was talking about Alan Davidson. Yeah, and uh, Davo, I suppose Davo, Davo and myself are the only Socceroos ever to be signed by by Brian Klopp. So you know, in a way, um, there's there's an accolade, there's an achievement. You know, if if that man, um, you know, rubber stamps your signing or, or you know or values you what he sees in you as a footballer. Um, not better. It is, it is certainly impressive in that regard. And you end up playing for Ipswich Town. Then you end up coming back to Australia. Uh, you mentioned uh, before how, why you need to come back to Australia. You ended up playing NSL, Sydney Olympic. You described it in your book as you felt like it was a bit of a failure considering you were playing uh, some of the best football just previously before needing to play in the NSL. Can you just describe that a little bit before we... Head on oh, to the Reading part. Just never really, you know, never really wanted to play in Australia. You know, it was just not even being disrespectful towards the NSL or whatever. It was, you know, I was a kid with a dream and I wanted to play on big stages. You know, if, if you're a baseballer, you want to play Yankee Stadium. You want to play for the Yankees. If you uh, football, you want to play in Spain. You want to play in England against all the big clubs, for the big clubs. Uh, so for me, coming back, it, it felt like I'd failed, but. But it wasn't, it was a different, it felt like I failed, but, but it wasn't so much failing on a technical level or on a football level. It was, um, I was really denied three, three, four, five hundred games in Europe because of the red tape bureaucracy that was just, you know, I'd been offered a contract for, for three years at Ipswich Town. You know, they were a big team then, big, big team. And you know, I'd just broken into the first team. And, you know, I get stopped at customs and I get sent home. You know, the guy puts a stamp in my passport and he says, you're never coming back here ever, 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 mate. Oh, he was wrong there, wasn't he? But it, it kind of, you know, it impacts you because you're then back in Australia and you're seeing guys playing in, in, in league matches and, uh, on the big match, FA Cups, and, and you know, they're playing uh, in, in a team that, and they're playing in that team because you weren't able to because you were denied a visa. Um, no jealousy part this and that. I, I was angry at the bureaucracy of it. And then you get back to Australia and then part-time football, you know, you, you've got to search. You've got to be in Sydney or wherever and you're looking for other jobs. And then, you know, the things I did, you, know, you try acting. You, I became a ranger at Wallara Cowns. I'm chasing dogs at Watson's Bay. Um, part-time dog catcher when, when the dog catcher was away uh, under the ranger services. So, um, the multitude of things that, that you do, that you're just to, that you um, take on uh, lends for a weird and wonderful story and journey. And in the middle of that, uh, when I probably wasn't as good a footballer as I was in Spain, uh, 1920, uh, you know, I get a soccer cap, you know, um, in a part-time environment with, with a job on the side and, you know, a, a mind that I still, you know, when I, I never cheated the game of football, you know, when I played and when I trained, I gave a million percent, but the environment allowed you to cheat yourself sometimes here, here you know, in a part-time environment. Uh, and, so for me, it just, again, I believe I was a better player 
those three years, 19, 20, 21, two years in Spain and a bit in England, uh, that's when I should have been capped, but I wasn't. And, uh, you know, it happened when I was playing less of, you know, at a lesser level than I was uh, born to play at. And by then I'd probably had a hundred holes drilled into my knee. It was bone on bone by, by 21, 22, to be honest with you, uh, I'd bone on bone and meniscus was gone and uh, the articular cartilage on the bones of the left knee were already starting to, to wear away. So, um, you know, surgeons for many years would say, you know, uh, it defies medical science what you do. And, and I kind of liken it to you get a ride, you get a drive with a Formula One team. And, you know, by 21, you've gone through all the carts, you've done everything, and then you get a ride in Formula One. And then the mechanics, the team boss comes up and says, you know, this you're in this McLaren for the next five, 10 years, but the left-hand side of the car um, will have no brakes and no suspension. Despite that, you still ended up uh, going back to England and uh, yeah. playing for Reading, captaining Reading uh, to five or six years or so to uh, end your career. Were you, did you at least feel um, sort of validated that you are able to at least make it back and end your career in that way? Well, that's that's kind of, you know, that was something that, would have haunted me for life if, if, you know, I'd been denied all those years of playing, you know, six, seven, eight, nine years of my best years, you know, unable to, to play in England or Spain for you know, because of red tape. And so the opportunity to go back, uh, even on one leg, I would never have passed a, a medical and MRI scan. And, and um, it was insanity that I went to see the, the doctor and he tapped my, my knee with a rubber hammer and he said, hey, is that okay, son? I said, yep. He goes, you're right. Yeah, he goes, you're right. No MRIs. I would never have passed a, a medical today. Medical, yeah. And, um, and I just played six, six and a half years and, and, and you know, lived lived a dream that I knew I could play at when I was a, a kid and that I dreamed of when I was a kid, you know, playing against Leeds at Elland Road, um, beating them, you know, Manchester United and FA Cup ties against Chelsea, against uh, just... You know, and sometimes, you know, we all win different things and some have more caps, some have less caps. Um, I suppose the greatest accolade I've kind of maybe received, I've told a few people, um, playing against Chelsea, um, Marcel Desailly, AC Milan legend, Dutch legend, uh, no, sorry, French, played for France, uh, and AC Milan, he, he was a legend defender, midfielder. Um, he was playing that day and Zola was up front, Viali, people like that. And, and uh, after the game against Chelsea, um, Zola and, and Desailly um, came up to me and said, you should have been with us today. So, you know, that, um, I suppose, football accolades, you know, from people that are players also, uh, legends, um, it doesn't come much bigger than that. You know, and, and I suppose we all get out of the game what we get out of. But um, for me, they were some special words. 100%. They de definitely sound like special words. And after you finish your career, you go, you get an opportunity to talk to one of the bosses at SFX and you end up getting employed uh, under that agency. And to prove yourself, you end up recruiting Tim Cahill was it in less than 24 hours? Is that what it said in the book? Yeah, I think it was 
Tony was was David Beckham's agent, but he you know created a company that that had, had Gary Lineker, David Platt, Beckham, Owen, Gerard, Dwight York, you name it. Everybody was in that office. Um, the uh, the office you know, of the same company in the United States had Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant. You know, so um, it was a pretty um, uh, probably not probably the the number one sports management company on the planet at the time. I got that job, and uh, I think Tony. Tony's test was, you know, we need to get Cahill. We can't get him. I can't get him. Our young agents in the office can't get him. Whatever we try and do, we can't get him. So give you three months. And so 24 hours later, I had Tim in the office. And uh, he became a client. And uh, I was part of the deal that, that took him to Everton. And we're still in touch these days. And um, I'm very close to Tim and his family. And, of course, he ended up uh, going on to have a terrific career, one of the best soccerers, you would say? Uh, the best. And people have different opinions. Um, uh, what, do, what do we mean by – what do I mean by best? What do we, you know, or individuals, you know, uh, we all have opinions. Yeah. Um, for me, um, he's the greatest soccerer in terms of the impact and when he impacted the game for the national team. You know the the first goal you know, for an Aussie at a World Cup. You know at an Asian Cup, his goal scoring record uh, the, in the book. The stats are there, but it's 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 of Ronaldo quality, of sheer quality at international level, um, and from a position where he's an attacking midfielder, not a striker, um, his goal stats are unbelievable. The goal, you know, the volley against Holland in the World Cup. Um, you know, as good as Kuehl and Vaduka were, and the fantastic players in in their own right. Um, Wonderful players, you know, played for the biggest teams in England at the time. And, um, but, but on an international stage, uh, I think Tim was equally as good and better. And he, his stats will tell you that. And, you know, uh, Kuehl and Viduka played for Leeds when they were top of the pops in England. Timmy played for Everton. Timmy's impact at Everton was like almost like Maradona's impact at Napoli. You know, he, you know, Timmy you know, took Everton that were mid-table and they were always fifth, sixth, you know, and he's scoring, you know, bicycle kicks at Stanford Bridge against Chelsea and stuff. So um, for me, uh, I might be a little biased because he was my first client, but, um, you know, I would put his stats down with any other soccer and, and, and they don't compare. It's as simple as that. And... I just want to get your thoughts quickly on the way agents sort of have taken over the game at the moment. You've got, it's just an example, but you got like, you know, Donnarumma's agent, Mina Ryla is one of the main ones at the moment. And he's about to leave Milan. He's, he's, he's a great example. Uh, let's just say he goes to Juventus, right? He's not going to, um, he's not going to be going to Juventus because Juventus are going to be paying him more, uh, more salary than like Barcelona or whatever. That's because Juventus will be paying Mina Ryla more of an agent's fee than any other club would. So what do you think about how sort of agents have become so even more, you know, um, influential in the in, in players' moves? I know it's always a, their own move at the end of the day, but you seem to hear these stories a lot and you wouldn't hear these stories that often if they weren't, uh, there wasn't at least a little bit of truth in it. Look, I think there's some, some powerful agents out there. You know, I've, I've met them. 
of um, all those guys that you that you mentioned, yeah, Ronaldo's agent Mendes and that. Um, these were guys on the circuit. Part of it, you know, when I was kind of around them, they some of the young punks that were coming through it, and um, you know they're unscrupulous. They, you know, there's no morals at that level. You know, the agent business is is you find the most horrible human characters and traits that you can ever imagine. That's why I don't I kind of stick clear of it. If I find a kid in Canberra or something that I, I kind of am, am, am friends with and I think he can go somewhere, we manage him as a, a almost on a family type level. Um, but do they have power? Yeah, of course they have power. They can control when you, you know, SFX, when I was in England, if you control 75% of the players in the EPL, yep. you have power. Um, you know, Raul, uh, Mendes, um, all these guys. Uh, I would say, you know, to answer your question, uh, someone would go to Juventus or Barcelona because the agent's getting more money. Um, there may have been those cases, um, but in most cases, the agency fees are, are pretty similar. You know, the, the wages would be similar, you know, going to Barcelona or Juventus, and the agency fee wouldn't vary much either. Um, Rayola could... could Quite you know easily say well, yeah, I think that's better a better suit you know a better fit for you a better this a better that. Ultimately, I think um, it's what the player is going to get, and if he's happy with that, uh, trust me, at those levels, the agent will be rewarded. Um, you know, but I, I've seen cases where uh, uh, you know with Beckham, you know, this is what you're going to get at Madrid. This is what you're going to get at AC Milan. This is what you're going to get at Barcelona. And, um, you know, the agency fees are not too dissimilar at times. And ultimately, like Beckham, he he had Real Madrid in, you know, on the mind. mind yeah. Uh, yeah, and he was going no, nowhere else. You know, the, the agency fees, uh, you know, one might pay whatever, a bit more than the other. But they work more on terms of... Uh, for example, if you take a kid to, say, AC Milan uh, or, say, Inter Milan, the, the director of sport would say, Andy, um, bring him here. We're going to give him this much, this much, this much, and we'll give you this much. Um, but the next good, good kid you have, you bring him here as well. So, so they're essentially like workers for the club now. Yeah, yeah. So kind of agents kind of become linked and 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 and, and friendly, you know, with a particular club. You know, there'll be agents like the ones you've spoken about that, you know, you'll see for a period of four, five, six years, a lot of their players go to a particular club because they're getting looked after. Not so much on one particular hit of an agency fee, but it's like you bring him here, there's a million dollar agency fee. And I want him and him and him that you also have, you bring them in next year. So the agent's going like, whoa. It's fantastic. It's just a inter inter are going to take all the boys. Yeah, and it's exactly. one after the other after the other, and and that's how it works. So um, it, it's you know what I think it's ridiculous the, the agent fees in, in, in football and and but it is what it is. It's you know if you're lucky enough or you work hard enough or you you know find yourself looking after one of those great players, you can you can get yourself. 10, 20 million dollars in a bank account in 24 hours. If that's where the player wants to go, that's the lunacy of it all. But it's the same with basketball in America and stuff. It's oh, yeah. It's madness.
now you've just had the media test effects. Now you uh, you spend a year traveling around Spain and Italy preparing for Be- uh, Beckham's moves, and now you are off to Madrid as his right hand man. Start of that chapter, you I think you say, little did I know what I was going to expect when you go there. Immediately, paparazzi everywhere chasing you around. 